This is the Journal of American History podcast for October 2014. Ari Kelman is the McCabe Greer Professor of History at Penn State University. He's the author of A Misplaced Massacre, Struggling Over the Memory of Sand Creek, uh, released by Harvard University Press in 2013, recipient of the Avery O'Craven Award and the Bancroft Prize in History. It's, of course, the focus of our podcast today. Ari is now working on two books, Battle Lines, A Graphic History of the Civil War, and For Liberty and Empire, How the Civil War Bled into the Indian Wars. Ari has been a member of the JH community as a reviewer, manuscript evaluator. Uh, Ari wrote an essay in our special uh, focus on Hurricane Katrina, our special issue in 2007, and happily will be joining the JH editorial board after the spring 2015 OAH meeting. Ari, thank you so much for doing this, my friend. It's a pleasure to think with you about uh, your wonderful book. Thanks so much, Ed. It's really, it's really great to be with you. So let me start by reading uh, for everyone and then asking you to, to think out of this the last paragraph of the epilogue in A Misplaced Massacre, Ari. You write, For in the end, this story of memorializing Sand Creek suggests that history and memory are malleable, that even the land, despite its implied promise of permanence, can change, and that the people of the United States are so various that they should not be expected to share a single tale of a common past. Sometimes their stories complement one another. Sometimes they clash. Sometimes they intersect. Sometimes they diverge. Depending on who tells it, the story of Sand Creek, for instance, suggests that the Civil War midwifed, in President Lincoln's words, a new birth of freedom, but also that it delivered the Indian Wars, that it was a moment of national redemption for some Americans, but of dispossession and subjugation for others. National Park Service officials and the descendants will never concur on every element of Sand Creek's interpretation. But they might agree that the historic site should challenge visitors to grapple with competing narratives of U.S. history, to struggle with ironies embedded in the American past. If that happens, then perhaps the massacre will no longer be misplaced in the landscape of national memory. So as you listen to that, Ari, what are the thoughts that come into your head and particularly maybe talking with readers about this site, this story as misplaced and maybe laying out for readers the the mapping of competing interests, interpretations, personalities, struggles over ownership? The first thing that comes into my mind, I have to tell you, is uh, how hard it is to write a book, <laughs> um, and that I wrote that paragraph. It was literally the very last thing that I wrote, and I I had spent so many years uh, working on this manuscript. I vividly remember sitting in my office and thinking, "How in the world am I going to end this thing? This this very very strange, 
story that that moved in so many different directions. And so to hear you read that paragraph, it's it it, it brings me back to uh, the struggle, not just that so many different people engaged in to try and memorialize this event, but the struggle that I dealt with uh, trying to get this down on the page. Having said all of that, in terms of the the issue of memorializing Sand Creek, this was an incredibly complicated story, and it was complicated for a variety of different reasons, uh, not least because from the immediate aftermath of the massacre itself, which which took place in November of 1864, near the end of, of the U.S. Civil War, from the immediate aftermath of, of the violence at Sand Creek, there were all sorts of efforts to contest how it would be remembered. Uh, and so the the colonel who was in charge of the 3rd Colorado Volunteer Regiment, a man named John Shivington, uh, this was the regiment that attacked uh, an encampment of uh, peaceful uh, Cheyenne and Arapaho people in southeastern Colorado. That colonel, John Shivington, uh, insisted that Sand Creek had, had been a battle, uh, that it had been, in fact, a glorious battle, that it had been part of uh, processes that he saw as inextricably intertwined, and that was the preservation of the Union and the creation of an American empire in the Trans-Mississippi West. And so for Shivington, what happened at Sand Creek, rather than being a massacre, was something noble. Uh, It was something that uh, should have been sanctified and it should have been remembered uh, in a very, very positive light. But there were other people who were there that day, uh, November 1864, November 29th, 1864 to be specific, other people who who believed that what had happened at Sand Creek had been uh, something far less noble, that it had been a massacre, and including uh, some of the men serving under John Shivington. And, and I focus especially on one of those men, uh, Silas Sewell, who very, very shortly after the bloodshed at Sand Creek began writing letters to friends of his, former commanders, people who he knew were uh, connected in Washington, D.C., suggesting that, that this episode had been had been a massacre. And and from those competing narratives emerged uh, what ultimately became close to 150 years of struggles o- over the memory of this event. And, and those struggles in my book culminate in the creation of a national historic site, in the Park Service trying to memorialize this uh, horrible and contested event, the bloodiest episode in, in, in the history of Colorado, one of the bloodiest episodes in the history of the American West, a, a kind of an irredeemable moment in American history. And that process of memorialization ends up being very, very challenging for a whole host of reasons, but especially because, as had been in the case in the immediate aftermath of the massacre, the Park Service discovers that nobody can quite agree what happened at Sand Creek. And and then, perhaps even more complicated than that, it, it turns out that nobody can quite agree exactly where Sand Creek happened. And so there's a, a series of, of struggles over not just the history and the memory of of this massacre, but also the cartography, the geography of, of where precisely it it, it happened and where exactly this National Historic Site should be placed. And so it's, it's, it's a series of disputes that pivot on different understandings of the past, different perceptions of, of the best methodologies to use to unearth our history, 
competing memories, competing cartographies, uh, and it's it's a it's a it's a very very uh, complicated story, and it was a very difficult story to tell in many ways. Thank you. Yes, I uh, we'll we'll come back to the issue of both land and story, but I remember Ari when I was reading the manuscript, I, I was thinking of Little Bighorn, a place that I know so well, and the kind of razor's edge issues of interpretation and symbolic ownership and all of that. But we didn't, <laughs> they didn't have that problem of where where did the battle happen? And Native American wisdom says it's here and scientific wisdom says it's over there. I, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to try and do that as a historic site. And yet, miraculously, people were able to do it at at Sand Creek. So can you summarize for listeners, after the battle, you have these competing narratives. What about that that long, uh, more than a century period of forgetfulness, uh, intentional or otherwise? Where, Where do memories live in the oral history of of the Cheyenne and Arapaho in occasional um, exposés of uh, white attitudes toward Native Americans. Where does it live in those years? And why do you think it's able to resurface in meaningful ways just beyond Native American oral tradition when it does? I'd start by saying that um, a lot of credit needs to go to the soldier that I mentioned just a few moments ago, Silas Sewell. Silas Sewell sends letters in the immediate aftermath of the massacre to friends of his, including Ned Winecoop, a former commander of his. Uh, Sewell knows that Ned Winecoop is well-connected in Washington, D.C. Sewell hoped at the time that Winecoop would reach out to his connections. Uh, Winecoop did that, and the result was that there were three federal inquiries into what happened at Sand Creek. And so when you ask the question about where where does memory live, where did it live over time, uh, it, it lived in a variety of different venues, including hundreds and hundreds of pages of testimony uh, from soldiers who were at Sand Creek uh, which can be found in federal records. And and that testimony was absolutely critical for a variety of different reasons, but especially because it established that there were not just Native people who believed that Sand Creek had been a massacre, but also white soldiers. And so I, I, I don't feel comfortable uh, quoting Steve Brady, who's a descendant of the victims of Sand Creek and who's the headman of the Crazy Dogs uh, Society uh, in the Northern Cheyenne tribe. And I, I, I don't feel, let me explain why I don't feel comfortable quoting him. I don't feel comfortable quoting him because when, when Steve spoke to me, he understood that uh, the words that he was sharing with me might be reproduced in a book, but I, I never asked him for permission to speak in his voice. And so, and so I don't feel comfortable appropriating his, his words exactly, but I'll paraphrase and say that, that at a certain point in, in the book, Steve notes that it's really critical that it's not just Native people who are talking about Sand Creek in these terms, but also whites. And, and as a result of that, or, or I suppose another way of putting it is that, is that a byproduct of that is that 
even in the 19th century, during the period of so-called Indian reform, when a number of former abolitionists turned their attention to trying to ameliorate the conditions that they see uh, Native peoples suffering under. So even during that period of, of Native reform, you have a number of different activists who point back to Sand Creek as a kind of a critical example of the way in which the federal government has has mistreated indigenous people in the United States. And, and probably the best example of that is Helen Hunt Jackson, uh, who wrote Century of Dishonor. And so that's the 1880s. Other examples that one sees near the end of the uh, 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th century, a survivor of Sand Creek, uh, a man named George Bent, who is the, the son of William Bent, a Borderlands trade tycoon, and his wife, Owl Woman, who is Cheyenne. George Bent recognizes at the tail end of the 19th century that the future of the American West is, is really at the center of a variety of different conversations about what the United States is going to look like in the 20th century. And, and Bent is, for a variety of different reasons, quite frustrated that Native people have no voice in those conversations. And fortunately, it, over the previous 30 or so years, he had collected a number of stories that, that, that came out of Sand Creek. He had spoken with his peers and with tribal elders. And he had uh, been a kind of a memory keeper, or I think a better way of putting it would be he'd, he'd acted as a kind of tribal historian. And at the end of the 19th century, George Bent begins sharing those stories. George Bird Grinnell, who's one of the founders of the field of professional anthropology, with James Mooney, who's a Smithsonian ethnographer, and with George Hyde, who's a relatively obscure historian. And because of Bent's efforts, we have an immense number of uh, stories of Sand Creek that have been preserved intact and have been preserved as part of the written record. And, and these are stories of, of Native people who were at Sand Creek. And so, again, that becomes critical. Now, responding to your question, where does memory live?, Bent and George Hyde, the historian who I mentioned, early in the 20th century, begin co-writing uh, a variety of different pieces together. And, and, and the first project that they engage in um, takes the form of, of a series of published articles in 1906. And in those articles, George Bent rebuts John Shivington's history of Sand Creek. He points to uh, specific atrocities that were committed by the troops under Shivington, uh, the desecration of the bodies of the Arapaho and Cheyenne dead on the killing field at Sand Creek. He lays out chapter and verse the ways in which the Arapaho and Cheyenne people at Sand Creek uh, believed that they had forged a fragile peace with white authorities in Colorado Territory, white authorities including John Shivington in the run-up to the massacre. Uh, and he makes the point that Sand Creek was, in his view and in, and in George Hyde's view, unequivocally a massacre, that this was not a battle. Bent, uh, I, I should just note, and maybe we can come back to this in a little bit, Bent also casts Sand Creek as being part of a much broader project of American imperialism, 
and he connects that project of imperialism to the American Civil War, which is which is one of the arguments that I make in the book. Having said that, though, sticking with this question of, question of where memory lives, these articles that Bent and Hyde write and publish uh, infuriate a number of John Shivington's surviving uh, subordinates. These are men who uh, live in Colorado still, and they read these articles and respond to them and, and, and engage in what amounts to a kind of a print war. And they suggest that their former commander, Shivington, that his stories of Sand Creek remain as true at the beginning of the 20th century as they had been uh, at the tail end of, of the U.S. Civil War. Mm. And one of those men, uh, Jacob Downing, then becomes very involved in, in the effort to memorialize uh, Coloradans' participation in the Civil War, an effort that comes to fruition with the unveiling of a Civil War memorial on the state capitol steps in Denver, a Civil War memorial that has on its base a list of all of the, and this is a quote, the battles and engagements that Coloradans fought in during the Civil War, and Sand Creek is, is listed among them. It's, it's one of those battles and engagements. So rather than casting Sand Creek as a massacre, it's cast as a battle. Uh, as you might imagine, this is part of a, of a national effort to memorialize the Civil War. And Coloradans realize that if Sand Creek is going to be part of this national Civil War conversation, part of this narrative that's being constructed by heritage groups around the United States, it's, Sand Creek will have to be depicted as a battle, an engagement, rather rather than as a massacre. Other examples include another effort to memorialize Sand Creek uh, during the Cold War in 1950, when Coloradans unveiled two additional memorials. Uh, one of these is located at what people believe is the massacre site. It's on an overlook, uh, looking down on Sand Creek itself. Uh, the second of those monuments is uh, was, I should say, it's no longer there, was located very nearby in Kiowa County. The first monument says Sand Creek Battleground, and it's, it's an echo of John Shivington's story of Sand Creek, of course. The second of those monuments, though, uh, says Sand Creek Battle or Massacre. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's obviously equivocal language, um, and, and that equivocation was born of the need to try and placate historical society donors and also local people in Kiowa County who didn't especially want to be told that they had a massacre site in their, back, uh, their backyard. They're much more comfortable thinking of this as, as the Sand Creek Battleground. Mm. Other places where we, where we see uh, the memory and the history of Sand Creek located D. Brown's Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, perhaps the most popular, best-selling history of the American West ever written. But then finally, and, and, and really crucially for the book, the descendants of Sand Creek's victims keep these histories and memories alive. They pass the stories from generation to generation, often behind closed doors, because there's for a great deal of, of the modern history of these tribes, the southern and northern branches of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes, there's a great deal of external pressure to forget rather than remember Sand Creek, pressure that's exerted by federal officials who are trying to acculturate the members of these tribal communities. And uh, nevertheless, uh, the descendants keep these stories alive. And, and 
for the purposes of, of my book, one of the things that I was most interested in learning is that the stories are preserved in precisely the way they were originally told. And they are preserved in this way because of ironclad tribal protocols that dictate that, that the people who tell these stories must tell them in exactly the way that they first heard them or risk, uh, in the language I think of historians, doing violence to the past. And so those stories exist within these tribal communities. There's also, as I mentioned earlier, George Bent's uh, various stories of Sand Creek. And the issue for the Park Service and for the various constituencies that are trying to memorialize Sand Creek is that very, very few of these stories agree on, on much of anything at all. Mm. And so the, the process of memorialization becomes a process, at least for some of the participants in this effort, of trying to reconcile incommensurable mer- narratives of the past, which, well, as you know from your work, is, uh, is very nearly impossible to do. Yeah, and that's a wonderful summary, Ari. And during this whole time, was, was the land just kind of there uh, with, with nothing on it? Uh, I mean, eventually, I know some, some of the locations become, become private land. Did the Cheyenne and Arapaho return for whatever kind of commemorative or anniversary ceremonies, or was it really kind of ignored and forgotten land during uh, this interpretive history up to the present? So between 1864 and uh, the late 19th century, we don't know much of what happened to the land where the massacre took place. What we do know is that it was homesteaded, divided and subdivided ultimately, and that it does move into private hands. But in terms of the kind of uh, commemorative activities that may or may not have taken place there, uh, there's just not a great deal of information. Um, there is a story uh, in one of the Denver newspapers of veterans of Sand Creek taking a trip down to southeastern Colorado. This is uh, late in the 19th century and, and looking for the massacre site and, and not being able to find it, getting very, very confused about the lay of the land, huh. talking to local people who aren't precisely sure where this happened, and eventually sort of throwing their hands up in the air, these old timers, uh, and heading back to Denver and saying, uh, we, we just couldn't quite figure out where it was. Hmm. The New Deal guide, the WPA guide to Colorado is vague about exactly where the massacre took place. But then we do know that in the second half of the 20th century, descendants of Sand Creek's victims who organized themselves in a variety of different ways within their tribal communities, that they do begin returning to Sand Creek uh, where they memorialize their ancestors, where they take part in a number of different traditional rituals, and they see the, the Sand Creek killing field as a sacred site. And so that memorialization activity it seems becomes increasingly vibrant and also happens more regularly as the second half of the 20th century wears on. Um, in those years, the land is, is owned uh, for the most part by a rancher uh, named William Dawson, Bill Dawson, 
who lets the Sand Creek descendants come onto his property and allows them to, to use his property for, for, for memorialization purposes. Bill Dawson also, for a great deal of, of the period that he owns the, the, what people think is the Sand Creek site, Bill Dawson also lets the public visit uh, his ranch. Sometimes he asks for donations, other times he doesn't. Starting in the 1970s and into the 1980s, though, Dawson becomes frustrated with the way in which people are using his land, and he decides that he's going to, to close his property. Uh, he still, though, in those years, allows the descendants to come in and use his property, but he no longer makes it available to the general public. Um, and it's, it's in those years that Dawson decides that he might want to actually sell his property. He gets in contact with Senator Ben Nighthorse Campbell, who's uh, Colorado's uh, representative in the, in the United States Senate at the time, and, and who also is uh, a member of the Cheyenne Council of 44 Chiefs, and, and talks to, to Campbell about the possibility of selling his property, the Dawson Ranch, to the federal government, and then having the federal government perhaps turn this into a national historic site or a unit of the, of the park system. When the Park Service becomes um, involved in this area, they have already been engaged in struggles over interpretation uh, at, at the Little Bighorn, uh, name change, uh, issues of, of do you take tours down into the private land where the huge Indian village was, eventually the Indian memorial issue. They've been involved in setting up a historic site at Washita, where, of course, the issue was battle or massacre and Custer's involvement there in, in 1868 was a real issue. So they've begun to be involved in these kinds of sites and also places like Manzanar and other places. So they're, they have some experience as a kind of arbiter of contested sites. But one of the things that, that struck me uh, about the book was that they want to be a kind of arbiter here between, and you can Tell us about this, the the really powerful split between tribal wisdom and scientific wisdom over where the battle, where the massacre took place. But they're not seen by by the the different sides as an arbiter. They're they're seen as a kind of prejudicial participant. Is that is that fair? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I I think that the the most important way of thinking about this is that. The National Park Service is a unit of the federal government, and for the descendants of Sand Creek, the federal government is in no way an honest broker, mm. uh, particularly when it comes to tribal history. And so the Sand Creek descendants, who it really is absolutely important to note, are, are by no means perfectly unified. They have no single memory or history of Sand Creek. They have individual memories, they have family memories and family histories, uh, they have individual perceptions of the past. But, but one thing that, that they do agree on is that their cultural sovereignty must be protected and that if they're going to cooperate with the federal government in this memorialization effort, they're only going to do so uh, insofar as they believe that it serves their interests and insofar as they believe that they will be able to not just have a voice, uh, not just have a seat at the table, but have what amounts to 
the ability to to halt the process if necessary. And and so when Senator Campbell writes the original uh, enabling legislation and the original legislation uh, pertaining to the Sand Creek site is legislation to search for the site. This is a uh, about an 18-month process of of looking for the Sand Creek site. The tribal descendants and 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 representatives to the memorialization effort are are not especially thrilled with this process because from their perspective they never lost Sand Creek. Uh, and again, I, I don't feel comfortable quoting them directly. I can I can simply paraphrase and say that they have the sense that they have always known exactly where this site was and that they know where it is, that they've been going there through the years. And the idea that there needs to be a kind of a scientific inquiry into the location of the Sand Creek Massacre site seems to them to be missing the point. Um, and, and, and I should say, it, it, it's not so much that the, the science is frustrating to them. In fact, most of the descendants were extraordinarily interested in the various methodologies that the Park Service used to try and locate the site. They were interested in the geomorphological studies that were done. They were interested in, in the archaeology that was being used. Uh, they were interested in aerial photography. Uh, all of the different methods the Sand Creek descendants found, I think, uh, fascinating it's just that they didn't think that it was necessary. And then when the Park Service, at the end of this period of searching for the, for the massacre site, when the Park Service arrives at a conclusion that uh, suggests that the, that the Park Service has found not just the site, but Black Kettle's village, Black Kettle is one of the peace chiefs who was in the Sand Creek camp. You mentioned the Washita a moment ago. Black Kettle survived Sand Creek, but then is is killed by uh, Custer's troops at the Washita. Uh, and the Park Service says, our methods have led us not just to the Sand Creek site, but they've led us to Black Kettle's village. And then they go on to say, and and they were thrilled to to note that it was approximately three quarters of a mile upstream from what the tribal descendants tended to call the traditional site. And that traditional site was, was in the shadow of, of that uh, memorial that I mentioned that was uh, unveiled in 1950, the one that said Sand Creek Battleground. And, and the tribal descendants at that point it's, it's not that they are anti-science or that they see their, their own understanding of Sand Creek as somehow antithetical to science. It's just that they don't want to be told that the scientific methods that the Park Service is using are go, uh, will, will trump their understanding of their own history. And, and so it becomes a question of sovereignty and self-determination and the way in which the descendants believe that once again, the federal government in this instance, as embodied by the National Park Service, is running roughshod over tribal history and tribal sovereignty. And so the descendants, as you suggested in your question, 
never really think of the Park Service as being a neutral observer or as being a facilitator. Instead, see the Park Service as having very, very clear political interests of its own, Mm. interests that the descendants believe might be uh, at odds with their own sense of how this event should be interpreted and memorialized. And weren't there also, among the, the ranchers involved, some economic interest in claiming that the the official, whatever that means, the official site, at least the Park Service's version of the official site, should be located on their land? Well, as I said at the top of the conversation, uh, the the various stories about Sand Creek very, very rarely dovetail. And and so you are pointing to, to yet another group of people who had their own interpretation of, of where this event had taken place. And so Bill Dawson, who I mentioned a moment ago, who's the principal landowner, who who owns the the land that people uh, traditionally believed had, had been the location of the Sand Creek Massacre, Dawson decided in the mid-1990s that he wanted to sell out, that he wanted to sell his property and leave Kiowa County. And uh, Bill Dawson is was and is, I should say, a very, very bright guy, um, very, very politically savvy. And he understood that the descendants' cultural authority uh, was going to be his best tool in his effort to maximize the value of his land. And so uh, Bill Dawson, who it should be said, is very close friends with a number of the tribal descendants, particularly the Cheyenne descendants, Dawson had, uh, from the Park Service, a vested interest, had an economic interest in making sure that the site search would arrive at the conclusion that the massacre had taken place on the Dawson Ranch, which, which again, is also known as the traditional site. And so when the Park Service arrives at the conclusion that actually Black Kettles Village was located more than half a mile upstream, this became, I should say, a a threat not only to the descendants' cultural authority and cultural sovereignty, but also to Bill Dawson's economic interests. Uh, And he was extraordinarily frustrated. Now, having said all of that, the landowners also aren't unified. The local landowners also aren't unified in their understanding of where the massacre took place. So Bill Dawson's neighbors, uh, the Bowen family, have their own interpretation of of where the massacre took place and and insist that this uh, tragedy unfolded on their property, not on the Dawson ranch. And, And Actually, I'll tell you maybe a story about my own sense of the the limits of of knowledge, including a historian's ability to understand the past, but also a student of of collective memories, the limits of of the way in which we can understand how these memory fights play out in, in real time. So when I wrote the book, there's a passage in the book and it's an absolutely critical moment for all of the various players in this story when a gentleman who claims to be representing the Bowens sends a fax to one of the Sand Creek descendants 
And that fax indicates that the Bowens are looking to sell their property for, I don't remember the exact figure, but it's, it's, it's millions upon millions of dollars. And that fax for the descendants colors their perception of everything that the Bowens do from that moment on. And now, the, this is an important story, and it's a story, as I say, about the limits of the knowledge of the historian or the student of collective memory, because I had a, a, a copy of that fax. That fax ex- existed, and, and it was quite clear that the person who wrote that fax was representing himself as, as someone who was speaking on behalf of the Bowens. Having said that, Chuck and Sherry Bowen, who are uh, two members of, of the Bowen family, the family that owns this, this land uh, that sits next to the traditional site, the Dawson Ranch, the, Chuck and Sherry Bowen maintained throughout the entire memorialization process that their family had no interest in selling the land and, and that they their insistence that the Sand Creek Massacre had taken place on their family's property, that insistence was not motivated by greed or in service of of the quest for a payday, but because they were deeply committed to the search for historical truth. Now, the descendants were always deeply skeptical of this. And in in the book, I I tried to portray this in, in the best way that I could, not by taking sides, but by noting that this was one really important point of contention in the process. Now, I'll tell you that after the book was published, I got an email from Chuck Bowen. He was very, very complimentary about the book and very kind about the book, but he was extraordinarily upset about my portrayal of that episode. And he explained to me in this email that that fax that I had a copy of as it happened, that that never existed, that, that this simply was, was uh, something that the descendants had made up out of whole cloth. Now, I wrote him back and said, I, I appreciate your feedback, but I've got a copy of this document. And I, I, I scanned it. I made a, a PDF of the, co- of the document and I sent it to him. And now I have no way of gauging how truthful he was being, but he then sent me a reply which expressed real astonishment about this. He acknowledged that the author of that fax was a friend of of his brother-in-law, but that he had never known that that fax existed. And, And he was... I, I don't know how to cast his reaction other than to say that he was despondent about this. Now, what I'll say to you is that for me, this was a really telling moment because that fax had been such a critical document mm. for the way in which the descendants understood the motivations of the entire Bowen family, but especially Chuck and Sherry Bowen. And to learn that it was entirely possible that Chuck Bowen had never known about the existence of that fax and that he had in, that, that he had believed that he was acting in the very, very best faith was for me just another layer of the way in which all of these processes are 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 
really contingent. Yes. That we that we can't know precisely what's happening. We can only do our best to approximate the way in which these processes unfold. Yeah. That's a, a great and humbling story, isn't it? Uh, it really was. So, and it, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go well, ahead. I was just going to say, it, it, it left me wondering about how many other instances there were like that, where I thought that I had a really tight uh, hold on, on the narrative, but in fact, there was quite a lot of slippage uh, taking place that I simply wasn't aware of. Sure, sure. So, Ari, how did this all work? Um, but you've got these huge problems uh, of these competing interests, not so much over interpretation, but over these issues of, of land, fundamental disagreements, uh, distrust, suspicion. Um, how, how did a site open, uh, a National Park Service site? How did it come about? And um, maybe as we sort of conclude the, the podcast, tell people a little bit about what they would see when they go there uh, and what kind of interpretive message there is. But first of all, how, how was it able to be successfully opened? The short answer to that question is that after the National Park Service circulated uh, its preliminary conclusion that it had found not just the site of the Sand Creek Massacre, but the, the precise location of Black Kettle's village, and there was uh, a, a tremendous backlash uh, against that hypothesis, a backlash both from the tribal descendants, but also from one of the local landowners. The Park Service floated a compromise, and it was a compromise that was, in my view, quite elegant. Uh, what the Park Service ultimately decided that it would try and do was create a national historic site with boundaries that were and are capacious enough that they could encompass a variety of different interpretations of Sand Creek's history. Mm. That, that it would be possible for the Cheyenne descendants to articulate their sense of how Sand Creek had unfolded and where it had unfolded within the boundaries of this historic site, while at the same time the Park Service could remain true to its historical investigations, to the methods that it used during the site search, and to its conclusions. And because of that compromise, the descendants were willing to continue to remain a part of this process. It remained a, an incredibly complicated process because the way in which the Park Service needed to acquire land for the historic site was also uh, complex and, and rather difficult. Senator Campbell in the original, uh, excuse me, in, in, in the legislation uh, creating the historic site uh, and in the original legislation uh, for the site search in both of those pieces of legislation made it clear that land would only be acquired for this site from willing sellers. That was the language that he used, which is to say that the, the Park Service, the federal government, couldn't acquire land unless local people were willing participants in the transaction. And so this created all manner of difficulties because Bill Dawson, who wanted to sell out, 
only wanted to sell at his price. And the Park Service, as, as you know from your own work, uh, is only able to pay fair market value for land. And, and Bill Dawson's price was, well, it was considerably above fair market value. Let's put, let's put it that way. It was probably about 10 times above fair market value. And so what, what ended up happening is that a, a casino corporation that does business with the Southern Cheyennes stepped in and, and, and brokered a deal whereby the Dawson Ranch ultimately ended up in federal trust. So it, it's owned by the Southern Cheyennes, but it is held in trust by the federal government, and it became part of this historic site. And so the resolution of the, the controversy over the massacre's location, and then the resolution of the complexity of the various land deals allowed all of these constituencies to come together. And as you say, uh, perhaps miraculously, the site uh, did open. Now, for my purposes, this is very, very much a story. We're coming full circle now and back to that paragraph uh, of mine that you read, uh, well, far better than I could have. Um, We're coming full circle to that paragraph. This is a story of the way in which the American past is, is shot through with with too many ironies to count. And the American people are so various that, as I say in that paragraph, it's, it makes no sense to expect the people of the United States to, to share a single story of a common past. And so this story of Sand Creek is a story in which the Park Service accepts that and decides that it will create a site that is big enough to include multiple interpretations, to include many different narratives, including competing narratives of the past. Ari, I think you have brought us back so perfectly to where we uh, began. I I think that's a wonderful place uh, to end, Um, although we could go on talking about the riches of of this book and story for, for a long time. Hopefully, Listeners to the podcast uh, will t- turn to your book. We have been talking with Ari Kelman, who is the McCabe Greer Professor of History at Penn State University, speaking with him about his book, A Misplaced Massacre, Struggling Over the Memory of Sand Creek, published by Harvard University Press in 2013 and recipient of the Avery O. Craven Award and the Bancroft Prize. Ari, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, Ed, it's, it's really been my pleasure. And I just want to say very, very quickly that I absolutely could not have written the book uh, without your help and your inspiration through the years. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm very, very grateful to you, not just for today, uh, but, but, for, but for years uh, of, of help that you've given me. I've been so excited we started talking about this book many, many years ago, Ariane. <laughs> Let's not say how many, because it's embarrassing. <laughs> uh, to see it come out, it, it does my heart good. Well, thank you so much. Okay, thanks, Ed. You have a great day. This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the Journal of Record in American History. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. To join, call us at 812-855-7311 or visit us online at www.oah.org.
In addition to receiving the journal four times a year, OAH members have access to a growing number of member benefits, ranging from discounts on a wide variety of insurance products to discounted subscriptions to the ACLS Humanities eBook Library to reduce registration fees for the annual meeting held every spring. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in December for our next episode. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at jahcast at oah.org.